You're listening to Nine Plus, a research podcast from Waterford Institute of Technology. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Rob O'Connor. Nine Plus is me having a chat with various people about research work being carried out in WIT. So far in the series, we've talked about 3D printing, physical activity, entrepreneurship, mental health services, and lots more. Previously, we spoke about the research support unit at WIT and the assistance it can provide researchers in securing funding, managing projects, and so on. We're going to carry on that theme in this episode, but this time from a different angle. James O'Sullivan is the manager of the Technology Transfer Office here at the college, which looks at opportunities from research outputs, such as forming a company based on discovery or invention or any intellectual property at all. I really enjoyed the chat with James. He has a huge amount of experience in the field, originally coming from a scientific background himself. He's very engaging and a great communicator, and I learned a lot about intellectual property just from this chat alone. As always, I began the conversation by asking James to introduce himself. Okay, so my name is James O'Sullivan and my role at WIT is Technology Transfer Manager. Okay, here's a big question to start with. What is technology transfer? So it's a very good question and it's very off-putting, I think, when people hear technology transfer. So what I'll probably do to explain it is go back to the context of where it began. So we can take it back to the 60s and 70s. And what happened was the US government was making very significant investments into research in academic institutes. And what they found was all of the investment that they were making was ending up as publications. And it wasn't being specifically sort of uh, directed towards jobs and towards creation of industry in the US. Some of it was going to other jurisdictions, other countries. So what the US decided they needed to do was somehow get a return on investment. They wanted to see that the money that they were putting into research was actually being pumped back into jobs and into industry in the US. So what they decided to do was to try professionalize the outputs of academic institutes. And what they did is they came up with a program and they called it Technology Transfer. And the European Union, uh, Britain and Ireland followed suit in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And really what Tech Transfer is about is it is putting a professional layer of engagement between the academic institutes and industry. And what that does in effect is it's trying to minimize uh, failures and faults between the two. So what can happen is industry comes in and they have areas around confidentiality or intellectual property or expectations around how a project will be delivered. Uh, whereas um, academic institutes may also have expectations around publications, around research integrity, around other areas. And it's making sure that there's a good fit between the two. So the, the purpose of technology transfer is to make that interface as seamless as possible. And that's, that's typically done through a number of mechanisms. First and foremost is obviously ensuring there's a professional engagement between the two through meetings, through discussions, but also contracting to make sure that expectations are clearly set out. So a trivial example, but one that actually uh, is very meaningful for industry is, you know, if industry comes in on the, I don't know, the, the 1st of May to do a project, that actually the academics don't go out the door June, July and August. And as opposed to being delivered in the middle of summer, it's delivered in September. Just setting out those expectations. What is going to be delivered? When will it be delivered? How will it be delivered? So technology transfer really is a service function within academic institutes to ensure that there's a good uh, relationship and partnerships are built with industry. 
That's a very comprehensive answer, actually. It's like you had it rehearsed fair play to you. <laughs> but is it... So here's this follow-up question. Is it only... Is tech transfer, technology transfer, perhaps a misnomer? Because is it only to do with technology or is it to do with a whole variety of different intellectual properties? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a complete uh, misnomer. Um, technology transfer was where it began. So that began with, you know, things like the hard sciences, the physical sciences, engineering. Um, nowadays, most of us refer to it as knowledge transfer. And mm. people who are professionals in the field are called, um, you know, RTTP experts, registered tech transfer professionals. But our, our, our um, activities are primarily around knowledge transfer. And it's much, much broader than the tech areas. So most of our stuff comes out of things like nursing, ideas out of you know social science, humanities, and it's bringing all that together. That convergence is wonderful. Because often when we deal with industry, industry tends to be a little bit siloed. So you have certain industry and they might be interested in uh, semiconductor chips or they might be interested in a certain type of metallurgy or might be interested in certain types of products. But actually what we can do in academic institutes is unique. We have people in psychology, we have people in nursing, we have people in, in loads of different areas, social sciences, we have engineers, we have loads of different areas that we can bring together. And that for industry is hugely beneficial. Mm. They really see the benefit of that, you know, convergence of technologies, of ideas, and not just a simple siloed uh, approach to something, the much wider uh, approach things. And that's the knowledge that we bring to the table that's highly valuable to industry. Mm. It comes back to the thing about a kind of university not being a set of buildings, it's yeah. it's a set of people. Exactly. Really. Yeah. That's exactly it, you know. And, and industry really resonates. And it, it's important, you know, that when we're undertaking projects with industry, that we, we bring everything to the fore, that we show them that we're much deeper. As you said, we're not just an engineering building or a science mm. building. We can bring all these other aspects in uh, and that really enriches projects and, and differentiates us from, we'll say, some of the consultancy service companies that just provide consultancy in particular domains. Okay, so let's stick a pin in that for a moment, right? Mm. So you're you're the technology transfer officer, office manager yep. now, okay? Knowledge transfer manager yep. might be a more appropriate title, but uh, anyway, that, that, that's where you are. Let's find out how you got here because okay. you, you didn't just appear suddenly in the world of tech transfer because I, I mean to be honest with you it's it, it's a kind of a strange title that I didn't even fully understand mm. and now I have a much better uh, grip on it thanks to your, your very comprehensive answer how did you end up in this role where, where where are you coming from kind of professionally because I'm sure nobody comes out you know doing the leave and start saying do you know what I want to be mm. I want to be a technology transfer officer how did you end up there? And uh, exactly, uh, I'm not saying it's not interesting. No, 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 no. That's yeah, not. It's not a value yeah. judgment. Yeah. No, no. Uh, exactly as you said. It's funny. It did just appear to me because I had never heard of it before. Mm. Um, but I suppose tracing back the steps, I said, like, did my leave insert. I did a degree in physics, so very hard science. Uh, I did a PhD in nanocomposite magnetic materials, which at the time I finished up in 1999. Nanocomposites were like all the rage, nanotech. It was really big stuff. And it was really interesting during my PhD. Um, it was FP5, so it was a really early uh, EU um, consortium. So I, I didn't really know what was happening in the background. There was industry partners in there. There was academic partners in there. And all of the tech that I came up with, new magnetic materials for uh, very specific applications in aerospace, all of that uh, went over to our partner companies and they used it and they commercialized it. We just didn't know. Um, 
we weren't aware that actually, you know, we had rights over this that we could benefit from in terms of licensing, in terms of patents and things like that. And only in hindsight, now this is 20 years later, looking back on, oh God, you know, we, we should have protected that, we should have done X, Y and Z. There was no consortium agreements, none of that sort of management. And, and so... I didn't even know what I didn't know at the time. And I just went through my PhD and I got a PhD and my publications. It was all great. And then from there, I moved into the semiconductor industry because semiconductors, it is nanotech. And yep. I moved, did a lot of work for the likes of Intel, for the likes of Philips, uh, TSMC, which is the big Japanese producer, uh, sorry, Taiwanese producer. And did a lot of work for these companies for a number of years. And it was great being an industry because you get to see how industry performs compared to how acad- academia performs, the different timelines, uh, different constraints, the different approaches. And, you know, money is big, big driver of industry, whereas in academia, it's not such a driver. So you get to see the, the different interface of, of science and tech and what you're trying to drive for. Um, there was, a, I suppose at the time, uh, I was interested in exploring more around how the companies actually function. And so what I did is I did an MBA. Uh, that was very interesting. And I really, I thought to myself, God, you know, what else could I do at the time? So I was approached by uh, a company and I was very interested in joining consultancy. So I joined one of the biggest consultancy companies, Accenture. And I spent a number of years with those uh, in financial services. And that was a real shock to me, a shock to the system. <laughs> because I was after spending uh, maybe, I don't know, 12, 15 years in tech. And um, to go into financial services, I was working around prime brokerage, hedge funds. And I was working on like o- OTC products and all these things. I was like, oh my God, what are all these words? And I'm so used <laughs> to the nanotech industry. I didn't even know what these things were. But they were looking at me from the perspective that, you know, you've come from a physics background, you can deal with numbers, you can deal with equations, you can deal with formulas. And it was, it was very easy. Once you start understanding what they were trying to do, for anyone who's done science or a science background, and I'd really promote that, um, you can you can be very versatile and you can go into a lot of different areas. So I spent yeah. a number of years in um, consulting. And then uh, an opportunity rose to come back to Ireland. I wanted to, that was in the UK. I wanted to come back to Ireland. And um, I joined another consultancy company, PA Consulting, and they specialised around science tech consulting. So I did a lot of work for the likes of Forfus at the time, for Science Foundation Ireland, for Trinity. I did a lot of, you know, a lot of their um, R&D strategies. I did a lot of work for Enterprise Ireland. And so I had a really good understanding of the the landscape in Ireland, the, the, the sort of academic, the funding landscape, what was happening. And I'm from I'm from Waterford originally, and uh, I saw a job in the Irish Times for a technology transfer manager. Didn't even know what it was. <laughs> I'd never been on WIT's campus, which is an absolute shame. Uh, I just didn't have any idea. Yeah. And um, I decided to apply for the job, uh, and obviously spent a good bit of time. Went back into Trinity and spoke to their tech transfer team just to see what what did the guys do. Just a couple of dry runs to understand what they did, and it seemed a bit surprising to me, you know, at the time because. You know, I got the feeling, I spoke to a couple of people in the industry who had dealt with um, various academic issues. It seemed to me at the time that there was a huge win here, that, you know, uh, tech transfer could do so much more and it was so enabling. Whereas a lot of what I heard from industry was, these are bureaucrats that are slowing things down. If we didn't have tech transfer, we could do things much better. And I was a bit confused as to why uh, you would have a tech transfer function, a service function, mm. if it was actually slowing things down. And I suppose the, the, the hill the hunt was I came down, did my interviews here, and I went very well, and I got the job. And then I I, um, I started working in the office, and uh, like many of my colleagues, Catherine Kiley had set up the office a few years beforehand, and I'd done a very good job establishing an office. It was the first in the IOTs, and I got funded through Enterprise Ireland. And the funding allowed for 
a tech transfer manager to run the office, but also supports, administrative supports, but also a budget. So we have a very significant budget to allow us to patent and have legal services and all those things in there. So my my, my route to tech transfer um, was a bit uh, well, it's a serendipitous, I suppose. There was a few different paths that I took, but having a hard science background, having sort of the, the financial background from consulting and also some of the, the strategy from another consulting background really gave me a very holistic view to say when people come into me to, for tech transfer services, I have a good understanding of the broader aspects. I'm not just a hard scientist. Mm. I know the financial part of it. I know services part of it as well. And that, that's been quite rewarding to me that, you know, when someone comes in with an idea, you say, tell me about your idea and say, well, what do you know about the business side of it? And they may, they may know different parts of it. And often I think, um, you know, some well, often scientists are, are worried, you know, they're great at what they do, but they're afraid that they won't know the other part. And that's, that's the part of tech transfer. Yeah. We will provide all those services to you. We'll provide the legal services, the patent services, the market assessment, the analysis. We'll help your business set up all those things. And that's what we're there to do. And so just coming back to the point that I said that, you know, when I, when I was doing my initial interviews, I felt that, you know, uh, our industry was giving me the impression that tech transfer was a sort of uh, an disabling service, slowing things down. It, it's just not the case. It's the case that tech transfer or knowledge transfer is really there to get things right. It's mm. like if you're setting up a building, you know, or, you know, creating a new house, you wouldn't just rush into it. You get the foundations right. And if you get the foundations right, you get the plumbing right, you get the infrastructure right, everything will go smoothly. But if you don't do it right from the start, and what I mean by that is putting the right agreements in place, the right understanding in place, things will fall down. And when you get the building put up, you'll, you'll okay, we've got no plumbing. What do we do now? And it's much harder afterwards getting yeah. that into place. I'm going to hit you with a really crude analogy, but as you yeah. describe it, it's something that kind of sticks to me uh, in, in my head. So I'm a big music fan and uh, I listen to a whole variety of material, but I think I've heard often stories about U2, uh, the band U2, yep. uh, that at the very, very beginning, they had their, their head screwed on business-wise. Mm-hmm. And they actually, even they were a band, they were a penniless band making yep. no money. And they drew up an agreement to split things particular ways throughout the band and you know whether you like you two or not is is kind of irrelevant yep. but you can't deny they've been incredibly successful Absolutely. and something must be doing right because they've stayed together for this long and some bands don't even last two weeks yeah whereas another band who would have been contemporaries of them at the time would be say uh, somebody like the smiths yeah who were very very successful but ended up in legal battles for donkey's years and now I don't think any of them speak to each other yeah. fights over money fights over who has the credit for this who has the credit for that and blah 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 so is it kind of to ensure like when you're talking about tech transfer knowledge transfer your job is to kind of ensure that the band doesn't break up Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And (laughs) it's to establish those partnerships, you know, that are long lasting. I mean, the worst thing, even silly, like, you know, relatively, you know, small things that may happen uh, during a project, if you've catered for it. So, for example, one of the things, one of the key expectations from most partnerships between academia and industry is publications. Yeah. And setting in the uh, in the contract between the two partners or consortium agreement between the partners that before we publish, 
whichever party is publishing, we'll give the other party, the non-publishing party, for example, 30 days notice. We'll show them what we're going to publish so that we can remove different bits. So we might want to remove something because it doesn't demonstrate our research integrity. They might want to remove something because it's confidential business information. Getting all those basic terms set out just yes. so we know how we're going to engage. It's absolutely critical. So the music analogy, the band analogy is really good. Set up that relationship, that partnership from the start. There, there are other aspects, I suppose, when you're thinking about tech transfer where you may not have any partnership. So for example, it might be a funding agency and the funding agency will often have specific expectations. So if it's Enterprise Ireland, they might have expectations that you um, create some patents, you create invention disclosures, you create a new company and all those things I will help with as well or the tech transfer office will help with as well to make sure that they happen as per expectation. So it's just ensuring that all of the uh, stakeholders in the relationship and the expectations are met. Right, here's another big question. At that, It might seem like a dumb question, but it's, mm. it's no harm in specifying what it is. You hear a lot about IP, intellectual yeah. property. What is it? So it's a very good question. Um, and I was talking to students this morning and I do it time and time again. I go around on CPD, walk, uh, CPD weeks. I go around uh, to research groups. It's a very, it can be a very complex area, but mm. to boil it down simply, there's typically about four or five different types of IP. So you have know-how, you have um, uh, design rights, you have copyright, you have patents, and you have trademarks. And so intellectual property is uh, the equivalent of tangible property in the sense that your tangible property is something like, you know, a field that you might own or a house that you might own. Intellectual property, typically, you can't put your hand on it. It's something that, you know, you've created. It's, it's, it's something much, much less tangible than uh, something physical. But what it typically is, is I suppose the things that we create are things like copyright. So you might create mm. a book or you might create a scientific paper and it's the expression of the idea. You have patents then which are functional. It's something that does something. So, you know, a new microphone with enhanced sound properties, a new bicycle wheel, uh, a lever for helping patients to get onto beds. Um, or you could have something like know-how. How do you bake a certain type of bread? So a good example of this could be, for example, um, the Seagull Bakery in Tremor. There was a case where the, the promoter of the bakery came up with breads herself because she had indigestion with the normal bread and wanted to create a sourdough bread selling out up at the, we'll say, at the, the church mm. and then had demand for it. And it's that know-how, how to make this product. So intellectual property ranges all the way from know-how to you know copyright, design rights, um, patents and trademarks. And there, there's a spectrum of things. In academic institutes, we tend to focus really around things like know-how, copyright and uh, patents. They're the things that we look at. And they all have different properties. They all have different costs. And what I'd say to people is, um, you know, I could spend a long time talking about them and they're probably confusing, more confusing than anything else. And I take legal advice as well from our patent attorneys and others. Um, if you have an idea or you have something, just come into the office um talk about the idea, spend a few minutes, we'll try to decide, is this something that's protectable? Is this something we can do something with? So the three aspects that we look at within the office is identifying IP, mm. protecting IP, and then trying to commercialize the IP. And some people think, oh, that's very crude. It's, you know, but on the commercializing side of it, it doesn't have to be us that does it. We can license it to a company in, for example, in in the region or another to make you to make so you make something of it, so you get some impact from it. 
Identifying the IP is the first step in the process. And to do that, the easiest thing to do is just come up to the office and say, look, James, I've got this idea. Um, and I'll usually ask you a few questions. You know, where did the idea come from? Is it your idea? I'll ask you about uh, what, what what does it solve? Uh, what's the nearest known ideas that you have to that? And people are usually very good at describing that. And some amazing ideas come out of the woodwork. A lot of students come up um, after I've spoken to them and say, I've got this idea for a weights product or I've got this idea for a nursing product. Or I've got this mm. food product. And they'd ask me, is it patentable? Is it protectable? And sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. And the beauty of the tech transfer office is uh, and, and WIT in general, we're not a bank, we're not a you know a venture fund or anything like that. We will work with you to try promote the technology, to try whatever you want to do. If you want to set up a new business, if you want to license it to someone else, we'll try package it up. We'll try get it out on uh, notice boards. We'll try get it onto marketplaces, or we'll help you set up a company. And there's loads of great uh, facilities within WIT, like New Frontiers Program and others. You know, to set up your business to to make things happen for you. But I suppose the question that, that you've asked is. What is intellectual property? It's almost anything that you can exploit economic value from where there's some degree of secrecy within it. Okay. <laughs> Again, a very comprehensive answer. Okay. A couple of weeks on one of the podcasts previously, uh, when we were speaking with uh, Ramesh from the Seam group, mm. kind of came up with a, an example about, they were talking about materials and I just made up an example off the top of my head about a bike, a yeah. kind of a new lightweight smart bike that had some sort of internet connectivity. So let's imagine we actually, myself and Ramesh, we went off and, and that group, we, we, we went off and we developed this and we came up with some sort of new type of bike that had some sort of special components yep. and it was connected to the internet and maybe it did something that was really interesting and cool and now we've built a prototype and I said right we want to turn this into a company I walk into your office now Yeah. what do I do next? You walk into the office and you say to me okay, I say hello by obviously check to see that you're there yeah, exactly. yeah. this is what we've built this is what we've done and I'll ask you all the questions about different things where did the idea come from one of the key questions I'll ask you is, have you told anyone else? So say yourself from a measure of working this and seem and you've told no one else, that's great. Because sometimes to protect intellectual property, there is uh, an element of disclosure. If you've disclosed it to someone else, you've given away the novelty. So I'll do some what's called due diligence. Yeah. And I'll fill, I'll check all these forums, I'll check all this stuff out and I'll do my research and I'll come back to you usually within a week and say, that looks good to me. And we can do a number of things then. So depends on the status of my, of the research that I do, we may decide to file a patent for it. If we decide to file a patent, I will ask you, what is your ambition? And if you say to me, James, I want to stay on as an academic. I don't want to take this out as a company. Absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Ramesh say the same thing. Fine. On the other hand, you might say, we want to set up a company. We want to do this. So there's two routes that we can go down. One is licensing and one is spin out. If we decide to license it, part of what my job will be then is to find out what companies would take this technology. Mm -hmm. So it might be Shimano or it might be some other bike companies. And we would contact them and say, we've got this new bike, we've got this new patented technology, we would like to do a deal with you. And we'll try to do the best deal we can. Underlying that is we're always trying to get benefit for the Irish state. So I would be trying to find um, Irish companies in Ireland that could make or produce the technology. Uh, that's our, our first goal is, you know, the, the South East, but obviously Ireland Inc. Is that a low, is that, is that your own goal 
is that an institutional goal or is that an interpersonal goal? Is, yeah, where's that, that coming from? That's an institutional goal. So okay. part of the mission and vision of the Institute and obviously SETU is to support the, the region economically. And so that's part of the, the overall mission for the Institute. But also it's part of Enterprise Ireland's ambition as well, to support Irish indigenous companies and those things. So we will be driving that way. And we, we try to do the, the best deal we can. Now, this is where the, the, the rubber hits the road as such. For every uh, million euros that we would get back in as part of the licensing deal, about 50% would go to the promoters. So about 50% would go to yourself and Ramesh, you'd split that between yourselves and there would be a document stating in which proportion you split it. So all that would be done and dusted. We'd have that signed and everything like that. Um, And on the other hand, if you decided to create your own company, what the institute would do is we'd license that to your company and then we would take a royalty back from your company. So whatever you make in the company, you keep for yourself. It's a more difficult route in the sense that you need probably a broader set of skills, you know, CEO skills, sales skills, marketing skills, route to market, access to market, all those things. It's probably more difficult, but it's more more rewarding. And if you get a big trade sale and you sell the company for 100 million euros, which has happened to us in the past, um, then you get to obviously benefit significantly from that. So would you say, but do do WIT or, or, or the, the tech transfer office or, or some institutional entity, does that retain a stake in it does. The, yeah. the... Okay, right. It does. So the way it works is the first 10,000 euros that come into the Institute from royalties, it goes directly to the promoters, directly to the founders, the people who come up with the invention. Then the next uh, approximately 100,000 euros, 75% goes to the, the, the founders or the people who came up with the invention. And then there's it's a, a sliding scale down to about 50%. We split up 50%. Okay. The money that comes in and is retained by the Institute goes into two pots. The first approximately 300,000, it's on the intellectual property policy, first 300,000 comes into the tech transfer office to allow us to do further patenting, further market investigations. It supports the office. Uh, And then um, approximately 50-50 is split between the department and also central functions. So um, it goes to finance 50% of it and 50% goes to the likes of, we'll say, the engineering department or science department. And that's the further um, development in those departments. So we try to be as equitable as possible in splitting up the the monies as they come in. So one part of my brain is going, but I did all the work, I invented it. Or, you know, myself and Ramesh and this. Poor Ramesh is getting an awful lot in this this hypothetical situation. but the other part of me, so I'm saying I did all the work, why are you keeping a stake? But then another part is going, well, if I had to pay legal fees for patents and filling out forms exactly. and I, I'm, I'm ignorant about those things, I haven't a clue, that would probably cost me an arm and a leg. Whereas so you could the, easily be 50 grand in, yes. in, two years in, 50 grand in, and then the whole thing might flop. Yes. And that's what I'm saying, we're not a bank or something like that. If we were 50 grand into this and the every the wheels come off as such of the bike and it doesn't work, um, that's fine. That's you can walk away. I can. Walk, well, you walk away, and it's like it's part of the the cost to the office. And this happens time and time again yes. that things don't go well. But you're not in debt. Whereas you could now. I have to just be a little bit careful here in my in my wording. If you had been funded to do that, we'll say through an SFI grant or an EI grant, we would own the IP. So you'd have no choice. But if you had done that and you were self mesh had done that in your garage by yourselves yeah. without any funding, then you would own it outright. But you could come back into us anyway. And we will put that funding available to make that happen. The patenting, the legal fees and general support around marketing and all those other areas. Um, and if things don't go well, then you don't have a big burden on your back. And I, I have had cases in the past where 
entrepreneurs have come into me with significant debt already accrued and they've said, what can I do, James? And we can't buy back the debt. We're yeah. not a bank. We, we don't have facility to do that. But if they come into me at the start when it's just an idea, then we can work on it with you. And we've lots of really good ideas that, that of examples of where that's happened in the past. Right. So could you talk us through an actual example then? You know, obviously, I, I'm very mindful, something that I don't want you to reveal any confidential yeah. details, but there are some headline ones that, of course, I know from technology what would feed Henry into Red Hat. But is there any examples you'd like to talk through? This is how it happened. This is roughly where it came. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you two student examples because this Great. is, it's, you know, good. And then I'll talk about a sort of a non-student example. So, so when you say student examples, are these postgraduate students, is it? No, undergraduate students. Undergraduate students. Yeah, okay, undergraduate so, students. so undergraduate students will, will come to you with ideas as well, yeah? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Look, we're an open office. Um, all you need to do is drop a line to me and okay. come on in. So if you're two students who came in in the past, one was uh, Keith McGrory. He had the idea for Hightower. He came in and he did some work with us um, and he decided, and we, we laid it on the table and said, look, this is what we can do for you. And Keith said, great. Sorry, I don't know what Hightower is now. So, so Hightower is a painting solution. So okay. Keith had expertise around painting, but he knew that there was an EU directive that you can't go up a ladder with a pot of paint. So he came up with this solution that you hold the paint uh, pot on a, effectively a, a stand, like a retort stand, and then you can dip into it while you're on your ladder. It's a it's health and safety aspect. It's very important. Okay. And he decided he didn't want to work with us. And that's absolutely fine. But we gave him all the advice. We engaged, uh, linked him up with a patent attorney. He went off and patented himself. He invested himself and he went on to be successful. He can find the product now in Woody's. It's, he's in the States. He's launched product in the States. And he's gone on. We uh, linked him with business partners as well. Been very successful. Another case, very similar type of tech uh, was Encon, um, uh, which is a building company. And they had a, a solution. They do retrofitting houses. And when you're putting cladding on the outside of houses, you have to bolt the cladding onto houses and then do a plastering over uh, over it to make it look um, neat and tidy. Mm. Um Connor Walsh is the, the promoter for Encon. He actually came up with this technology where you have effectively what looks like a cable tie and um, a zip wire device and you automatically bolt it onto the outside of the building. So it's a much quicker way of um, insulating houses, much more effective. And Connor decided he'd apply with us. So we took on the burden of patenting. So we took on the cost of patenting, legal fees, and Connor's work with us. He ended up being um, local business of the year a couple of years ago. He got an award for that. And he went up to represent uh, Waterford nationally at the, I think it's Deloitte Awards. He went up and uh, represented. He didn't win, but it was a great tech. Mm. And the, the two examples are, you know, we don't um, force anyone to make any situations. We'll tell you exactly the lay of the land. We'll tell you the restrictions. We'll tell you what we can do, what we can't do. And a lot of time I say to people, having WIT in your corner is a good thing because if someone decides that they want to sort of thread on your toes and sort of infringe or like take your IP having a big giant like WIT with deep pockets there beside you is a great thing because they say okay I'm not just taking this from uh, an entrepreneur they're backed by WIT you've got WIT in your corner and that can be a good thing to fend off other people whereas there's lots of other cases where we've had the likes of Feed Henry as the example, maybe where people know very well, where we have groups of academics working funded through Enterprise Ireland. And then what we do is we build up a load of intellectual property, which we can license then to the promoters and they set up a spin out company. They go off, they seek investment, and we're one of the owners of that company. We would seek investment with them and we'd support them through the process. And then at the end, they you know they sell the company for, I don't know, 80 million odd and everyone walks away happy from um, a, a, a relationship like that. But the key for us isn't about 
WIT making money. It's not about the promoters making money. It's about the hundred or so jobs that have been created in the region. High quality jobs. Mm. Now, it's gone from Feed Henry to Red Hat. I think it's now owned by IBM. Yeah. Um, Look, that's the key for us, having jobs in the region. We don't really, like, you know, financial controller kill me for this. It's not about the money. <laughs> it really isn't about the money. It's about, and we have to be careful about yes. state aid rules and all of the, the, the laws and the protocols and the EU directives to make sure we do everything above board and correctly. Well, at the same time, it's about jobs. Mm. It's about the region. Because... If we if we create jobs in the region, they'll come back in and support interns. They'll support you know third year students. Yep. They'll provide funding for uh, scholarships. They'll provide funding for other things, and it just makes the region much more dynamic. So that's what the tech transfer office is trying to drive at, trying to ensure that we don't miss anything and we do the best we can with the outputs that we're having from the college to promote entrepreneurs, to promote students, to promote industry. Uh, and especially those in the region. So I think a little over 20 years ago when I would have come out as an undergraduate with a degree in computing and there were practically no computing jobs in w, in, in Waterford. There yep. were, the Crystal would have been probably yep. about the best job you could get or one of the factories. And other than that, that was it. Whereas now you have, like you talk about Red Hat, but there's a whole ecosystem, there's a whole Absolutely. culture of, yep. of, of tech companies. Now, whether you're into tech or not is kind of irrelevant. Yep. But say the likes of Red Hat, we have a lot of Thurgis students go there. A lot yeah. of, uh, I think half the place is, is a graduate of WIT. Yeah. And they also tend to be fairly high paying jobs. Absolutely. You know, they're, Absolutely. they're high value jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just to, just to emphasize the point, sometimes we get a little bit lost. And again, this is the misnomer about tech transfer. Look, I often uh, deal with um, people who are in catering or in mm. nursing or in humanities. The idea doesn't have to be a technology idea. The key is finding a problem. So if you're working in a kitchen and every day you get burnt uh, by an oven or you're working in a hospital and your back is broken from doing something, that's a problem. There must be some way of solving that. And sometimes the best way to do is come into a group of people with the problem. So come into, you know, um, the growth hub or come into Arc Labs or come into some group and say, look, this is the problem. I don't know of any solution. I work in this domain. I work in a kitchen. I work in a hospital. I don't know of any solution to this. Let's figure it out. And we might bring in an anthropologist. We might bring in a psychologist. We might bring in an engineer from all the different faculties. We might bring in someone from computer science. And by putting their heads together, say, actually, the solution to that might be this, this and this. And mm. often... You know, often the solution that we come up first time around isn't actually the end solution, but we work with patent attorneys and we, we tweak it a little bit this way or that way. And all the parties come together to find a solution from that. And in cases like that, often it's one or two of the um, entrepreneurs that go out and do it together. So we had a case of we had uh, two um, two female students who were very interested in horses and they were very interested in coming up with a new technology to feed horses. And what they came up with was um, soldier flies. So you get soldier fly larvae, high protein, high in amino acids. You can't feed flies to um, domestic, sorry, to animals that go into the food chain, but you can to horses. They're not typically in the food chain. And this was a great technology. Now, the girls decided to go off. They were brilliant. They decided to go off and come up, uh, join um, industry. But actually, another company in Maynooth has come up with a very similar technology and they've raised significant investment and they're going off and commercialising it. So look for problems that are out there and think what solutions you might have to, to address those problems. And it, across multiple disciplines. Absolutely. So, so could it even be, right, let's say, for example, I 
came up with a new way of doing podcasting. Okay, yeah. I'm coming up with all these brilliant ideas yeah. and advertising them on the podcast. Yeah. Right? But say I come up with some new idea of of, of doing podcasts uh, and distributing podcasts, and then. I come to you. I said, "Look, I have this." So it could be I could be writing a book. I could be doing yep. anything. Could be poet, yep. my poetry. C- you can help me with that as well, can you? It can be something more abstract than that. Absolutely. It doesn't necessarily have to be utilitarian. Yeah, no. absolutely. And a lot of the time, for um, certainly for academic community, for things like publications like books or papers, mm. we don't. The institute doesn't take any ownership as such over. Now, then I've got into some technicalities around that, but generally, we don't take any ownership. But I can help you if, for example, your publisher wants you to sign off your copyright to that. You might have a question, is this okay for me to do this? Yeah. Or if you're publishing a paper and they want to do an early preprint online, is that okay? You can ask any questions around anything where you put creative input into it. So publications, anything like that. And we're there to support you. And I'm also there to, I suppose, provide you with some guidance. So you might say, oh, I'm going to put the big WRT stamp on the front of that. That's fine, isn't it? And I might go, oh, no, it's not. You know, Or, or yeah. it, may, it may be okay. But sometimes I'll have to give you guidance. Say, you know, you can't do that. We won't stand over that for, for X, Y, or Z reasons. Um, so it's making sure that it's like, it's a bit like a legal advisor. You yeah. know, we'll, we'll tell you what the letter of the law says and tell you what you can and can't do. But the main thing for us is supporting and encouraging entrepreneurs. And to me, students, uh, undergraduate students are the winner because typically undergraduate students don't have houses. They don't have mortgages. They're often not married. So they have little uh, constraints. And as people get older and they might have a big mortgage or they might have children and they might have commitments, it's harder to walk away and set up a new business. But I'd be encouraging students, anyone who wants to give it a crack, there's loads of programs that we can put you on. Uh, and some of the programs are funded, like New Frontiers, might be €20,000. There's loads of money out there, competitive start money, 50,000 euros to Enterprise Ireland. And these programmes will support you and take you for 10 to 12 weeks. It's worth a go. If you think you have something, it's worth a go. And the institute will be behind you all the way. Okay, final question. Let's say I wanted to get into the world of research. Okay, I was interested in starting a postgraduate or, or whatever, a postdoc or whatever. What, what advice would you have? What advice would you let, let, let leaving entrepreneurship aside now? But what advice would you have for somebody who is maybe thinking instead of just I'm finishing my degree, I'm going to get mm. a job. I think I might like to hang around and do something here. Any kind of advice about that? Yeah, what I tell everyone is um, by getting more skilled up earlier on, you're giving yourself a huge advantage, and that's borne out in terms of salaries with people who have PhDs or masters. The comparison of salaries, but also. Um, you benefit by getting a wider spectrum of skills. So I wouldn't necessarily go from one to the other in terms of going from uh, like a physics degree to PhD, which is exactly what I did. I might broaden it out going from, you know, slightly more like a master's in technology or something like that or a broader uh, sort of master's. It gives you a wider spectrum of skills that will be much, make you much more employable in time. I'd also say to people and um you know, when you join industry, let's say you're 22 or something, you leave um, your college, you're going to be working for 45 years. So enjoy college, enjoy the experience for as long as humanly possible. And a, a lot of a lot of PhDs and maybe masters now are funded. I mean, there's no additional cost to you. Now it depends, obviously, no additional cost. It's a great opportunity. I would I, I would encourage as many people as possible to stay on. And the other side of it is. Exactly as I said before, if you um, you know you do your degree, you go to industry, you're working, you're on one hundred thousand a year, you have three kids, you have a big house, and someone says, "Why don't you go back and do a PhD?" Well, how do you stop that? How do you stop the the mortgage payments? And if you're going to do a part time, I've seen some of my friends do a part time, 
and I could see they're nearly broken hearted. They're trying to mind the kids. They're trying to study at weekends. It's so hard. Uh, when I did my MBA and I did it after my PhD, I was the only, uh, there were 16 of us doing the MBA. I was the only person who wasn't married or had kids. I was, I was still very young myself at the time. And um, everyone dropped out or delayed it by myself. So I finished on time. No one else managed to finish on time only because of the other commitments they had, ha- had at the time. So I'd encourage everyone, while you're young, free and possibly single, uh, just continue on to do uh, a, a you know, postgraduate, whether it's a master's or a PhD, it will pay dividends in the long term. And once you have it, no one can take it away from you. If somebody wants to find out more about you, the James O'Sullivan or the technology transfer office, where should they go? Yeah, there's um, on the WRT's website, there's the tech transfer office and it gives all the contact details. So you can search for tech transfer on our, on our own website. Um, alternatively, you can look me up on LinkedIn. It's just James O'Sullivan um, or you can contact me directly on just josullivan at wrt.e. Any questions you have about intellectual property, uh, if it's questions specifically about you know research or masters, I'd probably refer you on to our research support unit, which are wonderful and will bring you through the entire process. But anything around tech transfer, any ideas you might have, and, and to be very clear, we will support you whether you came up with your idea in your garden shed or whether you came it up in you know the the PMBRC or in the Walton Institute, wherever it might be. We'll support you through the process as long as you're linked somehow to WIT. And even if you're an entrepreneur. And you walk in off the street, you've never been in WRT before, but you want to work with us, we will support you. Brilliant. You can't ask for fear than that. No. James, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 9 Plus Podcast. You can keep up to date with the podcast on Twitter at 9 Plus Podcast. That's digit 9 PLUS Podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me at roconnor at wit.ie. Constructive feedback for the podcast is most welcome. And if you have any ideas for topics to discuss, I'm all ears. Okay, until next time. <laughs>